something new this morning, the sermon time class. Melanie's going to lead the kiddos age three to grade three. can follow Melanie through that door over there. They are currently dismissed. If you have a Bible, please open it with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're looking at one verse this morning. If you're joining us, haven't been a part of the Wallace services for a while, we're working through the first epistle of Peter. Last week, we looked at the six verses uh, Peter had for wives. This week, one verse for uh, husbands, and that is 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Let me just say, as we, before we read it, you may be wondering, uh, what good is this for me? I'm not a husband. I hope to, I may never have a husband. So, so what, how is a sermon like this relevant to you? My answer would be, on the one hand, I think you're going to see principles that bless all of your relationships in the message, and not least, to know what God thinks about a subject is always good for you. It's always good for you to know what God thinks about a subject, and here we see the revealed mind of God at least in terms of one verse for what he thinks about healthy husbanding. So let's read it, and we'll explore it together. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. I pray for my kids all the time. And I can't tell you how many times this has happened, praying for my daughter, Laura. She's 29. She'd like to be married someday. I'm praying for Laura, something like this, Lord, and you're perfect time, please bring Laura, a man, a husband, who will love her, cherish her, uh, lay down his life for her as Christ laid down his, his life for the church. Bring Laura someone who will just find her uh, just utterly uh, wonderful as a woman. So I'm praying that for Laura, and guess what happens almost instantaneously? The Holy Spirit convicts me, what about you? Are you that for Janice? Do you want to be what you want your daughter to have as a husband? Have I actually modeled that for my daughter? Have I demonstrated for Laura's watching eyes what Peter says is one of the keys to healthy husbanding. And it may surprise you, but you know what that key is according to this verse? It's understanding. Peter writes, live with your wife in an understanding way. Literally, with understanding. The idea seems to be considerate understanding. So do you believe a husband's true charm is in his understanding. Let's see if we can find out why. I'm going to ask three questions of that idea. An understanding husband. 
Number one, do you want to understand your wife? Now, why do I have to ask the question? I'm not sure I, al I always have. Knowing my own selfishness, my own pettiness, my own demandingness, I'm not sure I've always been a man who wanted to understand my wife. So let's apply the golden rule, and here we'll, we'll branch, branch out beyond just husband and wife relationships. Just think about this in all your relationships, the golden rule. Treat your wife the way you want to be treated. In highly important relationships in your life, do you want to be understood, respected, honored, given the benefit of the doubt? Of course. Do you want to be manipulated for someone else's gain? Do you like people acting condescendingly towards you? Do you want people placing unrealistic expectations on you? Answer, of course not. So just like you want your wife to give you her best, give your wife your best. What then do you need to understand in order to do that? Let me tease out a couple of things. First, your vision for your marriage. What are you trying to accomplish? My pre-marriage material is called developing a vision for a gospel-centered marriage. That's because I want couples to have some idea what it is they're trying to pull off in their relationship. What's your vision? What do you want to accomplish? Is this someone more than a, a, a partner you sleep with and shares their duty and the chores? Well, let's go to the original design. God designed marriage to be such that if you were living in it, you'd never dream of leaving it. Let me say that again. God has so designed the marriage relationship that if you were doing it on God's terms, you wouldn't want anything else. And you're saying, well, just a second, Mike. I've got my share of frustration in my marriage. Sure, we all do. Perhaps that's because you're seeking your vision for the relationship on your terms versus God's. So let's think about, is your vision informed by the word of God? What's the key concept at the heart of the marriage relationship? It's companionship. It's a union, it's a companionship. Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. God saw Adam's loneliness. God saw that there was nothing else in all of creation suitable for Adam. So the Lord himself fashioned from Adam's rib a woman and he brought her to the man. The first wedding in history, God walks the bride down the aisle. He says, Adam, for you, for my glory and for your unspeakable happiness, I don't want you to be lonely. Do you think Adam was thrilled? Do you want that same sense of thrill and wonder in your marriage? You should. So the marriage covenant is a covenant of companionship, two equals forging one life, sharing emotionally, physically, spiritually, intellectually, 
or in the words of Genesis 2, you leave your parents, you cleave to your spouse, and you weave a life, one flesh. You share secrets, dreams, desires. It's a knitting of the hearts together in vulnerability and intimacy. Laughing, weeping, encouraging, supporting, challenging, or in the words of verse 8, letting all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. If you can't apply that to your marriage, you won't experience the glory for which God created it. It's designed. So now you have a test for whether or not your marriage is healthy. What's the test? Is one of you lonely? It's a covenant of companionship. It's designed to solve the problem of human loneliness. Second question about this vision. What are the impediments to fulfilling this vision? Once Adam and Eve sinned, a new challenge arose. Shame and blame. When God came looking for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden after they sinned, they were ashamed and hid themselves from God. They were ashamed of what they were no longer, morally perfect. So they tried to cover themselves as if God couldn't see through their stupid fig leaves to their moral impurity. So the relationship with God is severed, and when your relationship with God is severed, all your other relationships in life won't work until that relationship is made right. Trying to do anything in life without a right relationship with God is like trying to run with your shoelaces tied to each other. So they're ashamed of their sin in God's sight, and they start blaming. The woman you gave me, the serpent deceived me. And so human beings are left with this inbred propensity from then on to be ashamed of their moral guilt before God and to hide that shame behind blaming other people. Do you want proof of this in your relationship? Who do you think, when the day is over, is the worst offender in your marriage, you or your spouse? I'll bet you think it's your spouse. Blaming. If you have understanding, you'll admit that, that, that you're guilty of shaming and blaming. And there's help in Genesis for this. The first help comes uh, when, when God says to Adam and Eve, he warns them, in the day you eat of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And that set up a principle for all of life to work. And that is this, for life to work, something must be killed. God was saying, for you to do life the way I created it, you must resist any urge, any temptation to disobey me. For life to work, something must be killed. When the liar came in, they should have killed the liar. If they didn't kill the liar, they should have killed the lie. For life to be what God made it, you must assault any propensity against doing what God doesn't want you to do. So now a healthy couple is engaged fighting with each other against their sins. Not fighting towards each other, but together fighting however idolatry shows up in their hearts. And the second way Genesis helps us is it asks the question, are you resting in the love of Christ for your deepest love? 
God came seeking Adam and Eve. He came to rescue those who try to hide their shame with fig trees, who try to deal with their guilt before God on their own terms. God came seeking them. In other words, until you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and you have seen, received through Jesus the one promised who from the seed of the woman were bruised a serpent on the head, until you receive Jesus' cleansing, you'll never be able to escape shame and blame. You'll live in a relationship where there's hiding, blaming. You're doing all kinds of mischievous things to cover your shame. It is in Jesus. And that's the glory of the gospel. God takes the penalty for our shame. He bears it into the flesh of his son Jesus on the cross and gives us the perfect righteousness of Jesus in exchange. Peace with God. Nothing to prove, nothing to lose. <laughs> Restored by grace to the status of God's sons and daughters. I, I don't know how you do marriage well without a confident standing of being forgiven, loved, accepted, at peace with God as his son or his daughter. So do you see you need the third person in your marriage? It's no coincidence. It's probably a pre-incarnation theophany of Jesus, Jesus walking Eve down the aisle to Adam. God is saying, if Jesus isn't in the middle of this relationship, it's not going to work. And where then do you receive the power to implement the vision? Where's the power come from? Only in the security of the gospel, Christ's love for you, Christ's cleansing for you, Christ's advocacy for you, Christ's death and resurrection for you, setting you free, setting you at peace, only in that security can you say to your spouse, I'm warped by the fall. I'm a mess. I'm a natural-born blamer. I have more to be ashamed of than I know, yet Jesus loves me more than I know. And so I can stop pretending to be something, posing to be something I'm not. Your wife knows it. She sees you. She lives with you. And since my trust is in Christ, I can say to my wife, come into my mess, come into my heart, and help me with my brokenness to become more the man Christ is calling me to be. Likewise, I can ask Jesus to use me in the heart of my wife to help her in her brokenness become more of the woman Christ is fashioning her to be. That's a beautiful thing. That's a really different vision than two people pitifully struggling to have their own way. Jesus, the grace giver, always shows up and always make, makes relationships healthier where he's invited in, where he is desperately needed. So that means, beloved, husband and wife, the greatest gift you have to give your spouse is your own passionate pursuit of the heart of Jesus. To get into that heart, to know his love, to know his grace, to bring him your brokenness, to bring him your shame, to tell him you're a natural born blamer, and you throw your feet on the floor in the morning and you tell Jesus, look, if left to myself, my sin, my pride will ruin this relationship. And Jesus can't help but forgive that, enter into that. He's attracted to brokenness. That kind of humility Jesus runs into. And he has a way of fixing it. He has a way of pouring out grace. And where that grace goes, by definition, that needy grace, that rescue me from myself grace that Jesus can't resist giving, that grace is very splashy. It goes into human hearts and then it splashes out onto those that you live with. 
so marriage done well becomes the great grace splash party two people desperate for jesus and his grace comes and it tends to splash out and overflow onto the other person are you seeking that overflow here's what it will produce that grace thought it will produce a man with realistic expectations expectations that comport with reality meaning this you'll realize i married a bigger sinner than i thought and i'm a bigger sinner than i thought nobody gets married realizing how big a sinner they married or they are but the gospel frees us to have realistic expectations so I'm not going to demand that my spouse be perfect. For heaven's sake, I'm never going to be perfect. And it produces a man that your wife respects. Ephesians 5.33, Paul says, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now husbands, on the strength of that, you could demand respect but the kind of respect that is sweeter to the marriage is the kind that is earned. Where your wife watches the way you live and pray, and she concludes, his decision-making ability moves me to trust him. I'll follow him anywhere. Does he make mistakes? Of course. But he's honest. He's transparent. He's humble when he does. And he clearly values my input. That's the kind of respect you earn by living in a gospel way before your wife. Second question. First question. What's your vision? What are you trying to accomplish? It could be the case that you have strife and trouble and difficulty in your marriage because you're not pursuing God's vision. Could be. Second thing, do you use the tools which foster understanding? Again, the command is live with your wife in an understanding way. Here's one of the keys to a healthy marriage. Understanding. Are you, here's the second question, using the tools that foster understanding? Let me tease out a couple. And they're the same tools you need in all your relationships, it turns out. One is listening. James chapter 119, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. A lot we could say about the verse, but here's one principle that is in that verse. Your wife doesn't care how much you know until she knows how much you care. Here's a corollary to that. Your wife won't know how much you care until you listen much to know. She won't know how much you care until you listen much to know. So men, you may need to modify some of your assumptions. You may need to assume you have more to learn than you know. Let her unpack her feelings, her impressions, her thoughts. Why are you always interrupting? No, really. Go in your prayer closet and ask 
the Lord, why don't you listen? Why are you interrupting? Why do you do more talking at than talking with? Challenge your assumptions. Assume that your perspective on things needs tweaking. It needs the female perspective. It needs the wifely perspective. Assume you'll be better off for listening to your wife. There's a joke among men that goes like this. I learned the, the two words that are the key to a happy marriage. Yes, dear. I frankly find that condescending and patronizing. Just so you know. Tools that foster understanding. Listening, secondly, questions. Again, let's use verse 8. Finally, all of you. So a wife ought to take these qualities. A husband ought to take these qualities. All of us in the church are given these. I preached the whole sermon on these qualities a few weeks ago. Take these qualities, husband, and interpret your wife from the perspective of unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. So ask yourself, what is she saying? Why does she think that way? Probe her understanding. How does my manhood help her with her womanhood? Now, some of you men be saying, yeah, I've also heard the saying that men use uh, all of their words at work, and when they show up, they have no, no more words for their wives. Or you may be saying, I'm a task-oriented guy. I'm not particularly verbal. You're asking something of me I humanly can't pull off. For the sake of Christ, and that your marriage reveal your truest husband, Jesus, and that you reveal God is a God who communicates, then you need to learn a new craft, speaking, if you don't know how. You need to learn it. Get some men that know how to talk to their wives and have them teach you. Maybe you need to ask your wife to teach you how to converse. Don't leave it the way it is. And the next tool in this toolbox is understanding. Excuse me, is observation. You observe the way your wife processes life. You observe what her needs are. What does tenderness look like for your wife? Gather data so you know how to empower her and elevate her personal glory so that she flourishes intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. That's part of the idea in that Ephesians passage. You're going to present, husband, your wife to Jesus as the work as the result of your work, your work, presenting her to Jesus, as Jesus will present his spotless bride to his father on that great day. So here's one test to see if this is happening. Your wife can say, I'm married to a frail man. He disappoints me. He's a sinner. But nonetheless, by the way he listens and observes and questions, I feel like the most cherished woman in the world. No, he's not responsible for my happiness. Jesus is. But nonetheless, because he weeps over my sins and rejoices over my graces and is not easily put off by my frailty, I feel like the most cherished woman in the world. Now you say, how in the world does that happen? Only knowing Jesus, only the glory of Jesus who swore to his own hurt 
for the purposes of your welfare. The gospel is what? Your heart is more desperately wicked than you have any idea, but you're more loved than you ever dreamt possible. <laughs> when that reality gets your heart, it really does change the way you want to listen and care and elevate your spouse. Here's one last tool, serving in the pattern of Jesus. Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You serve your wife so that she gets the sense you'll give up everything for her. My husband's eyes are on my needs ahead of his own. I am the blessed recipient of his other-centered humility. So husbands, do you see the paradigm? Because by faith you know Jesus is for you, right? The one who knows you best loves you most. Wonder of wonders. So you relate to your wife in a way that she believes, my husband is for me. We're not in an adversarial relationship. Now, what causes relationships to get adversarial? It's where you have an agenda beyond being humbly other-centered. You're demanding that a need be met ahead of serving your wife. Some of you, it's the need to be in control. Your controlling lust is killing your relationship. Some of you, it's the need to be right. You're smothering your wife with your need to be right. Some of you are driven by a need to be appreciated. That's swallowing up the glory of the relationship because it's about your needs. The question to wrestle with is, what are you lacking in Jesus that you would demand from your wife or from others? Last question and then we'll be finished. Do you understand the delicacy of her womanhood? Again, Peter's saying in this one verse, the key to healthy husbanding is understanding. Understand the vision. What are the impediments to that vision? And then thirdly here, do you understand the delicacy of her womanhood? Peter says, live with your wives as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman. This is not inferior weakness, it's delicate weakness. Do you see Janice or me walking by the ocean edge, walking down the beach by the ocean's edge, which are hand-cupped? You know why our hand's cupped? Because we found a sand dollar. And sand dollars are really frail. You can find lots of pieces of sand dollars along the edge of the shore, finding a whole one. So we'll walk back to our stuff, our chairs, with our hand cupped because we're holding that sand dollar very delicately. That seems to be the picture. How is she a weaker vessel? Weaker is a comparative term. It doesn't mean weaker in intelligence. Certainly in my marriage's case, it doesn't. It doesn't mean weaker in moral capability or spirituality. We are all equally glorious in Christ. Paul asserts this over and over again. One verse is Galatians 3, 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for we're all one in Christ. The human institutions we use to make ourselves feel superior to others disappear in the gospel. We're equally glorious in Jesus. So, 
what does weakness refer to? It could be physical strength in view of the suffering that Peter anticipates is going on. I said last week that the context for chapter 3 is the suffering, not only submitting to authority that he talks about in 2, but the suffering that Christians are enduring. Think back to verse 20. Peter says, but if when you do good and suffer and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He may be thinking physically enduring suffering is harder for a woman. Could be that. It could be that she is in the weaker position with respect to authority. Remember the last six verses we looked at in the beginning of 1 Peter 3? Women submit. This is, one, this is another human institution. Women are called to be in submission to their husband. That puts you, by definition, in a weaker, vulnerable position. That person could abuse their authority. That's a kind of weakness. So be sensitive, women, to this constant temptation to maybe resent his authority. Or it could be uh, uh, that because women are more sensitive, they're more sensitive, they're emotionally in tuned, they're going to feel more deeply, they're going to be fractured more emotional distress in the relationship, as a rule. Could be that. I don't know which it is. I do know that one famous theologian, his name is John Calvin, he said this, nothing destroys the friendship of life like resentment. So I don't want to be acting in any way that would give my wife reason to resent the authority I have as a husband. And far from justifying some abusive, domineering, chauvinist position, this understanding moves a husband to assign his wife what? Peter says, honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. You wrap your authority, you wrap your understanding in honor. However you view your wife, it is the honor you desire to give her. She is highly esteemed because like you, she will inherit the glories of eternity. C.S. Lewis, did he not say, if you could see your wife as she will one day be in the presence of Jesus, you would be sorely tempted to fall down and worship her. So why not honor her now with the honor she will have in the presence of Jesus that day and she already enjoys as the redeemed of Jesus. So valuable to God is this understanding that he warns husbands that the failure to understand your wife will hinder your prayers. That's pretty stunning. Now I want to ask you, what person in their right mind would want their prayers hindered? Because that spells a breakdown in your relationship with God. And show me a husband who doesn't care to relate to his wife in an understanding way. I'll show you a husband who doesn't care about his relationship with God. A far more precarious place to be than an ununderstanding husband. Your prayers are hindered. I can confess 
leaving the house, going out as a minister to help other people, thinking, this isn't good. I haven't really lived with Janice in an understanding way. My prayers are kind of going to be hindered. It's good to be convicted with this verse. Who in their right mind would want prayers hindered? So thank you, God, for giving us this warning through Peter. So I've got to scrutinize as a husband the way my self-love keeps me from understanding my wife. Now I put a quote in your handout from Paul Tripp. He's a favorite author and speaker and Christian counselor of many of ours. This is a quote from his book on marriage called, What Were You Expecting? That <laughs> kind of says it all, doesn't it? So if look at this with me, I'll read it, and then I have a few more things to say, and, and we'll be finished. This is just so helpful to show the danger of self-love. If it's not attacked, if it's not killed, life's not going to work. Paul Tripp writes, it is self-love that hates difference. It's self-love that makes you impatient. It's self-love that makes you want your own way. It's self-love that convinces you that your way is the right way. It's self-love that makes winning more attractive than unity. Love celebrates the grace of change that operates in the middle of the difficulty of difference. Love prizes unity and is willing to make sacrifices to achieve it. Love turns difference into an opportunity to experience a deeper, fuller unity. Love isn't impatient and doesn't walk away. Love perseveres. Love stays active until what God has planned becomes your actual experience. Love listens, works, and waits. And unity happens when love intersects with difference. Amen. Where do you get that love? You always reason from what Jesus has done for you to what you are then motivated in gratitude and love to do for your spouse. You always start with what Jesus has done for you. Without seeing that clearly, none of this is going to happen. So if you, if you have a handout in front of you, I've just teased out a few practical ways you reason from what Jesus has done in the gospel for your soul to what you give your spouse. And this cuts both ways in our marriages. For example, because Jesus suffered in my place, don't skip over that. Think on that. Stay there. Stay at the cross. I was talking to someone recently and we were marveling at the way another person was shamefully treating someone else. And we said, how do you treat someone that way if you've been at the foot of the cross? You can't. Because Jesus suffered in my place, I will resist my idols and selfishness so they don't hurt my spouse. Because Jesus has forgiven me all of my sins, I will approach conflict with an open heart. I could be wrong. Jesus has already condemned me as wrong and as a sinner and forgiven me and set me free. I won't assume I'm right. To know Jesus is to know you got a lot wrong. So don't assume you're always right. Reasoning from Jesus to the way you're going to act towards your spouse because Jesus died to purchase for me God's immeasurable blessings I will seek the beauty of repentance attacking pride and its way of getting the better of me. I'm so blessed. That motivates me to go after my pride. 
Left unchecked, my pride is going to kill my marriage and my relationship with you. Because Jesus met all the demands of the law of God for me, I will not expect or demand perfection from you. Who wants to wake up walking on eggshells that if you don't do everything the way your spouse wants you to, you're going to get hosed? Who wants that? The gospel says that is an intolerable situation. Because God doesn't relate to you that way because of Jesus. Because Jesus' word is sweet to my soul, I will watch carefully how I speak, sensitive to the impact of my words. Some of you speak as if your words, you don't know the impact of your words. How can you? In view of the gospel? Because Jesus delivered me from the power of Satan and indwelling sin, I'll seek to bring my heart daily under the Spirit's control, praying that his fruit be born in my life. And because Jesus calls weary, proud sinners into his humble, gentle heart, I will seek to have my heart filled with his gentle humility. You could go on and on. Do you see the point? Always reason from who Jesus is for you in the gospel to how that transforms the way you relate to your spouse and other people in your life. Now, this will produce a healthy marriage. And you'll find that the greater treasure is Jesus. He's the greatest treasure. We, we sing a song here called The Sands of Time Are Sinking, and one of the verses goes like this. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand, the lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. You do marriage like this, you'll find your heart smitten with the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, our husband. You tell your people in the Old Testament, you are the husband of your people. We see that fulfilled in Jesus, the husband of his bride, the church. Every one of us has a husband, the Lord Jesus. What a lover you are of our souls. May that love, may that grace, may that power, may who you are in your glory transform us, help us, and bring to pass something of the glory of your care for your people in the way we care for each other. For Jesus' sake, amen.